I could get some volunteers. I've got some handouts. They are front and back. One page. And hopefully these will help you in note-taking if that's something that you find helpful. Getting a little bit of feedback. Do you guys hear that upstairs? All right. Okay, so while they're finishing up uh, the handouts, good morning to everyone. Um, been a little while since I've been up here, so I'm having to kind of get back in the swing of things. All right. Um, so, past couple weeks, we've started into a new study um, that we're calling Foundations of Faith. Uh, it's based on a, a book that we got from the Gospel Advocate. It has several topics in it. Foundations of Faith is is just the first section. I think there are four or five sections. It's a very large book, so there's a whole lot of content there. Um, but what I'm covering this morning, if you can read it, font's a little small, uh, is one of the first sections in the book, The Reality of God. The Reality of God. Not realty, reality. Big difference. Uh, and this is going to be part one, so I'm planning for this to at least be a two-part lesson. We'll see how... Uh, how good I do on time this morning. It could be more than that. All right, so I want to share a story with you first. I read an article this week uh, about a film crew in a very small town in Spain. Um, and they were filming uh, a series for an upcoming Netflix show. Uh, I think it's supposed to come out in 2022. I don't really know anything about the series other than that it was involved in this story. But... Uh, so the crew was in Spain, and they had asked the local mayor if they could do a if they could record or film a bank robbery scene. Now, of course, a bank doesn't want to close down for just this small crew of filmmakers. So the mayor approved them to use the city hall, and so they were they were going to record this bank robbery scene in the city hall. And so you've got. Your, your actors that are in like full black garb with fake machine guns and ski masks and everything, you know, ready for, for a bank robbery. And if I read correctly, the director was actually one of the bank robbers too. I think it was kind of a low, kind of a low budget thing. Um, and so they were, I saw some pictures, they were in the, the front lobby of the town hall and there were people on the floor with their hands behind their head on their knees, you know, like they were innocent people in the bank. And everything was going fine until the cops showed up. You see, the mayor approved the filmmakers to use the town hall, but neither the film crew nor the mayor thought to tell the police. And so concerned citizens outside of the town hall called the police, and five squads showed up and surrounded the building with guns. Real guns, not fake guns. Um, so it seems as though it had a happy ending. Um, filmmaker almost got arrested, but they cleared things up. Uh, but the, the point of sharing that story is that there was a disconnect there between what was reality 
and what was fiction, right? What was really going on and what, what was real, the, the officers didn't know. The townspeople didn't know. They didn't know what was real and what was not. So, that being said, I want to talk about the reality of God. Um, first of all, to kind of establish the importance of the study, um, and I think it's fairly, uh, fairly obvious, without the reality of God, if God is not real, then there is no faith. There's no basis for faith. Why would you have faith in something that does not exist? Right? Why would you have faith in a, a deity that, that does not exist? And so, when we're talking about foundations of faith, if God is not real, then what kind of foundation are we laying? Well, it's not a very solid one, right? Because you're not building it on anything real. You're building it on something that, that wouldn't exist. And so, the purpose of this study is to make sure that that basic foundation uh, is laid. Without God's existence, His reality, uh, Christianity is merely another uh, philosophy. The Bible is merely a book of philosophy. Um, just men sharing values and ideas. If you go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Colossians 2, verse 8, uh, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So we see a comparison here, a contrast, between the Word of Christ, the religion of Jesus Christ, of God, versus empty, man-made philosophies of the world. The distinction there is God's reality, and therefore Jesus' reality. If God is not real, then Christianity and the Bible is just philosophy like you could find at the bookstore or anywhere else. Uh, without God, there's no hope. There's no hope for forgiveness of sins. There's no hope for an afterlife. There's no hope of heaven. Uh, there's no hope of redemption, of salvation, of any of it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 uh, says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul's talking about the situation of the Gentiles and in a former time where it says here they, they didn't have God, and so therefore what? They didn't have hope. There was no hope for them because they didn't have God. If God does not exist, there's no hope. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. Uh, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, in other words, if there's no resurrection, if Christ is, has not been resurrected, if Christ has no uh, deity to Him, um, oh, lost my place. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. We are in a very tough spot uh, if God is not real. Uh, and then without God, of course, I already alluded to this, but Jesus would have been just another man. He would have been just another teacher uh, like any other who's written religious books over hundreds to thousands of years. There would be no distinction between Jesus and any other religious teacher um, as some people would try to allege. So uh, like 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, 
Um, it says there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If there is no God, then, then Jesus Christ has no role to mediate between us and a non-existent God, right? There's no purpose for that. Because if God is not real, then there's no need for a mediator. And if there's no need for a mediator, then Christ is not unique in any way compared to just a man. Um, and so, several years ago, um, I was asked, what's the purpose of, of studying things like this? Why do I need to know this? Because most, if not all of you here this morning, already accept this, right? That's why you're here. You, you believe that God is real, and so you're here to learn more about Him. And so it seems kind of pointless for me to try to convince you of something that you already believe. However, uh, we're not the only people in the world, right? Um, so a few things that, that I kind of want to, to, to bring out here. Um, first of all, is it's for ourselves even if we already believe it, right? Because our faith is not always as strong as it might be in the present moment. Uh, a mature faith requires uh, an honest inquiry into the reality of God, uh, weighing the evidence to draw a conclusion, right? We draw conclusions based on evidence. Not only that, for us to understand this topic and be able to teach it to others, there are others who do not accept these truths. And I'm going to get to this later, but there's a difficulty in talking to someone who doesn't believe in God because you're not starting from the same place. If you're speaking to a friend who's in religious error, at least you can start from a common ground and build up from there. If they accept the Bible, for example, you can at least go to the Bible and start looking at verses and comparing what they teach and believe versus what the Bible says. But if you're speaking to someone who doesn't even accept God, they won't accept the Bible. And so you've got to figure out, how am I going to reach this person if we don't have this common ground to start from? So that's part of it. Um, and of course, another thing is, some of these people out in the world who, who don't accept God want others to not accept God too. So, us, but also our friends and family members, um, for those of us who are parents, our children who are growing up and having to deal with this in their lives, it's important for us to be able to instill that, not only in ourselves, but in others that we care about to help them grow in their faith and when they're met with these challenges, understand... Um, I guess understand this topic better, be able to articulate this, not just repeat it back, but part of the reason that I gave you all this handout this morning to fill in is so that you can go back when you're in that situation and refer to this and help you, help to remind you of some of these topics, not just to go and ask someone like your religious friends might do, but to be able to defend it yourself. I mean, yeah, I think there's a point to that because what, what he said is um, isn't there some sort of deep down some sort of, must be some sort of belief because otherwise you would want others to not believe so that you don't have to believe, right? Because then you have to reckon with your lifestyle. You have to reckon with your decisions and you have to reckon with your eternal destination, right? If you accept it. So if other people don't accept it, then it takes off the pressure for you to accept it and you can go out and live, live your life how you want to. Fair? Yeah, so, and I, I, we'll kind of get to that into one of these arguments too when I get in here in a minute, um, how that kind of manifests. 
when you're talking with people. Um, so, so what I want to do is divide this lesson into two parts, and I think it will make more sense as we go on why. Uh, but the first I want to address is the existence of God. Okay, The question of whether God exists. But then the second point I want to bring out that maybe we don't always treat as much is the identity of God. Okay, So not only does God exist, but once we've established that, who is God? And that, I, I keep referring forward in time in the lesson, but it will make more sense as we get there why this is an important distinction. And I will make sure to bring that out. And if I don't, please remind me, and I will go back to it if I missed it. So, the topic of the existence of God is this morning, and uh, whenever we finish this lesson, I will then get into the identity of God next. I'm going to treat these as separate ones, separate topics, and then we can kind of bring it all together in the end. Uh, so why use evidence? Why do we need to bother referring to evidence, um, studying some of these, these, these arguments as part of these debates like you'd see from Apologetics Press and other places? Why not just read the Bible and do what it says and believe it? Okay? I mean, that makes perfect sense to us. But as I mentioned before, if someone doesn't believe in God, then they're not going to believe in the Bible either, right? Because the Bible is God's Word. If I don't accept the existence of God, then the Bible is merely another religious book. And so I want to give you an example to kind of um, illustrate why this can be challenging when dealing with a non-believer or someone who is wavering or doubting. Uh, and it's a logical fallacy called begging the question. And you might have heard the phrase, something begs the question before. And it's actually not the correct usage of the term, but I'll save you the details on that. Uh, but begging the question is a logical fallacy where someone uh, presents this argument, they assume that the premise is true, and that, well, they assume the premise, bleh. the premise assumes the truth of the conclusion, is the point. The premise assumes the truth of the conclusion rather than supporting it, okay? So when you're making an argument, your premises are your your facts, right? All the things that you're putting together to, to bring your evidence and, and be able to, to put all that information together to draw your conclusion. So the premise is supposed to support the conclusion. You put all your premises together, you get to your conclusion logically. But the problem with begging the question is that you've already assumed the truth of your conclusion when you've made your premise, okay? So I'll provide an example. Um, Someone might say that ghosts must be real because I saw one, okay? They're going off their personal experience. The issue is they haven't provided any evidence for whether ghosts are real or not. They're just saying that I saw something and it must have been a ghost because ghosts must exist, so therefore ghosts exist. So you see the flaw in their thinking there. For me to determine that I saw a ghost, I must al already be assuming that ghosts are real for me to have seen one. So when I try to say that ghosts exist because I saw one, what I'm really saying is ghosts are real because ghosts are real. And it's circular. Okay? It's flawed thinking. So the problem is, when you're dealing with someone who doesn't believe Scripture, it's possible to come off as begging the question if you say something like, God is real because the Bible says so. Okay? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying the Bible's not accurate or true. 
But when you're talking to someone who doesn't believe in God, what you're telling them basically is God is real because God said so. And if they don't believe in God, then God saying so is not going to mean anything to them. Okay? So that's the challenge. When you're trying to teach someone who doesn't accept God's existence, basing God's existence off of God's word is not convincing to them, at least not at that point in their life. Um, we need to build a case with evidence to help them get past um, that issue. All right, did, did, is everyone totally confused or did we kind of get through that okay? Getting a lot of blank stares. I'll assume that's a good thing. Um, so and, and this segment's going to be a little bit controversial, I think, because there's, people look at this in different ways. The way I've fallen on this is that uh, the existence of God cannot be proven or disproven using uh, scientific methods. And what I mean by that is science does not address the question of spirituality in a direct sense. Science is about testing things. It's about observing things. It's about measuring things. It's about putting something in a, in a lab and running an experiment over and over to be able to come to a conclusion. The problem with that is you can't put God in a test tube, right? God is not physical. God is spirit. And so it's not to say that God doesn't exist because I can't prove God scientifically. It's that God exists outside of that entire field, right? So any attempt to prove or disprove God in a scientific, naturalistic way, I think is doomed to failure from the beginning based on my study because you're trying... It's like trying to... What's a good example? It's like taking a ruler and trying to measure how bright something is. Right? How bright is that light? I'm going to take a ruler and try to figure it out. It doesn't really make sense. Right? You're trying to apply a tool to something that the tool was not designed to test or to measure. Okay? So my point in that is we make conclusions about the existence of God not based on naturalistic methods, but based on weighing the evidence and using our reasoning to draw a conclusion. And remember, this is when we're dealing with someone who doesn't believe in God. Obviously, the Bible comes into play, um, but when you're trying to speak with someone who doesn't accept that, you've got to start further back, using reasoning, using evidence to help build a case to draw a conclusion. Uh, I want to reference Romans chapter 1, verse 20 here. Romans 1, verse 20. Uh, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And then I'm also going to go ahead and read Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4. Hebrews... Chapter 3, and verse 4, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. I think what you can see from the scripture here is the idea of God's existence being self-evident from nature, self-evident from the world he's created, from the universe he's created. We can use that evidence, we can use the existence of the universe, we can use our existence, and we can use all the different things that God has put into the universe, into motion, to help point to him, right? I think scripture obviously supports that. 
that being able to observe the existence of God can be done by His creation, that there's evidence there for Him if we're willing to look at it and weigh it honestly. All right, so what I'm going to do now is go through um, what some people would call three classical arguments or, or three main, more popular arguments when talking about the existence of God. I'll then bring up a couple more than I'm aware of at the end, and this is on an exhaustive list. Some of them get really technical, though, so I left some of those out. Um, but there's, there's plenty of resources. I've got uh, um, Apologex, no, yeah, Apologex Press. Dave Miller has a Does God Exist book where he covers these and other arguments. So if you want to look into this, um, I think it's a pretty good overview that's not too technical. Um, I have, I think I used like three other books for this lesson. If you want, if you want some more, I can, I can give you the titles of them. Um, but anyway, so we're going to cover three main arguments, and then I will give you a couple more to chew on later that you can look up if you want to. Uh, so the first argument is often called the cosmological argument. Uh, the simple way of referring to this one is uh, basically a first cause, right? Cause and effect, and that's kind of what this argument is built on is the question of uh, what is the universe's cause, right? So the argument goes like this, and then we'll get into the details. Uh, first of all, it, it claims, premise one, that the universe began to exist. And that's generally at this point not a very controversial statement. You'll have a few holdouts who will try to come up with some other explanation, but both atheists and, and believers should have a, a generally a common ground on the universe began to exist. The explanations of how is where the conversation really begins, but we should be able to agree on that in most cases. Uh, so if the universe began to exist, okay, so this is the logic that we're following here, this is the reasoning and the evidence. Premise two is, if the universe began to exist, then the universe has a cause that is beyond the laws of the universe. This is called a transcendent cause. So the point is, if something happens, if you get an effect, the cause has to be greater than that effect, right? Um, if I stomp on the ground, that's not going to cause an earthquake, right? Because the cause is not greater than the effect. And so whatever effect happens, the cause has to be greater than the effect. And this leads you into the situation where the universe couldn't create itself, right? Because the universe is not transcendent of, of the universe, it's itself. So it has to be greater than the effect that happens. Um, so yeah, it's the idea of cause and effect, that every material effect in nature has to have an adequate cause, something that actually can create the effect. Something less than can't do greater than. Um, matter cannot be created nor destroyed naturally, which means that the universe cannot create itself. And so then you're left with either the universe is eternal, and it's always been here, so it has no beginning. If you're going to try to refute the argument, then that's one thing you'll have to try to say. Or there exists a God, notice I said a God, we're not into the identity part yet, that brought it into existence. Some higher intelligence and power that's greater than, transcendent, the universe, outside the laws of nature that was able to bring it into being. Um, so yeah, so you're... you're Basically, your objections are either going to be an alternate explanation for the beginning of the universe that's greater than the universe itself. The problem there is, if you come up with something in the natural world to explain the existence of the universe, then that's part of the universe, right? 
So if I try to go beyond the universe in the physical universe, now I'm still part of the universe. It's like adding one to infinity. You still have infinity. So it's kind of a self-defeating logic. Um, or you try to justify somehow that matter that can't be created or destroyed naturally is eternal and it had no beginning. Um, there's some flaws in that dealing with thermodynamics that you guys probably don't want to hear about this morning. Um, but anyway, so then if you rule out the other two explanations that are both naturalistic, you're left with God creating the universe. So, yes? Don't underestimate your <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to be... I barely got through it. I did not enjoy it myself, personally. But, but it's a strong argument. Yeah, I mean, so if you, if you want to get into thermodynamics, there's, there's a lot of issues there with, with entropy, you know, with, like, there's so much going on that these arguments have to be purely theoretical physics where laws are being broken. Yeah, which is part of the reason for a lesson like this, right? Is because the people, like, you have grown up going to church your entire life. You know Scripture back and forth. Well, guess what? It's an atheist's belief system. They're going to be learning that their entire life. They know it back and forth. I'm not saying it's correct, but they know it, and they know it well. So if you're going to speak with somebody, you need to be, have at least some familiarity with what's going on. Yeah. It starts making this Christian Christian faith that we've had seem mighty small. Right. And it's it's turning a lot of kids away. Right. And it, it's being able to speak the language, right? It's just because it's unfamiliar. If we if we're not unfamiliar with it, then we can talk about it. Like that's I think it's one thing that, that I find easier because, you know, I'm I'm an engineer. I've studied science for a long time. Right. So for me it's not as intimidating because I have the background. Um, but yeah, so, so when I can present something like this to people who don't have the background, at least to develop some level of, of familiarity with it, it, that my hope is that it helps. Right, and the, oh, go ahead. Paul Jones Press is very good about mm -hmm. teaching Christians about these issues, mm -hmm. the thermodynamics. Yes, yeah, so like, so like this book right here is pretty good, but they make a lot of stuff. They have articles on their website, lots of resources to help you build that familiarity if that's not something that you already have. The thing is, though, our kids are online all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's more than ever you have access to anyone's opinion, whether it's good or bad, or whether it is valid or not. The information's out there, and so you definitely want to be able to be grounded and understand these things before you get to them, because that helps, you know, keep you, again, foundations, right? Um Yeah, I mean, and 
And the problem is, and I was, I was about to get to this, and I'll go ahead and mention it now, things like this assume that scientific laws are being broken. Like, there has to be a break in thermodynamics for the universe to have all, always existed. So there's a, there's a contradiction there that's not brought up, right? That's not addressed, because this is part of a belief system. Because what happens if, if your belief system is based on a scientific law being broken, then you're, at that point, why not just accept God? Because it's the same thing, right? You're dealing in a realm of faith now. It's shrouded in naturalism, but if you're having to break your own laws, you're, you're dealing with faith. If we can't observe it, we can't experiment with it, we can't run a test on it, I'm no longer practicing science, I'm practicing faith. Yeah. Because it is not based purely on scientific fact. Right. I mean, this argument is dealing with basically the conflict between two creation stories. There's an atheistic creation story, and there's a the creation story of God. Neither one of them is 100% scientific. Both are outside the realm of science. One of them has a reason for it, and one of them is contradicting itself. Mm-hmm. Well, I think also one issue is that the younger people are being told you can't have both, right? And I hope that I'm evidence that that's not the case, that you can't pursue science and math and engineering and still be faithful. I'll tell you, probably about 60% of my professors at Auburn in the electrical engineering department all went to the same Baptist church. (laughs) Um, There's the conflict between faith and science is only there if you make it that way. That doesn't have to be the case. Encourage, you know, your, your children and grandchildren to study science and study math. Just make sure that you have the foundation built so they understand what, what the limits are. Because, like I said, science cannot go outside of its own natural bounds. Yes. Always have an answer for your faith. A reason. Tell them how this can be. And this is what we're doing today. Learning mm-hmm. How to tell them. And we absolutely have to teach children now. It's become critical. We're going to listen to a, a very evil world. And you're right. It, we have to let them know. And I think the sad thing, too, is if you go out and you listen to people like Bill Nye, you know, who's, who's big, been big in scientific education for decades, they're motivated. They're very motivated to make young people naturalistic atheists. How motivated are we to make sure that our children are taught? And if they're more motivated than we are, what's going to happen? And be careful of those people that you allow your children to look at in that situation. Mm-hmm. Bill Nye is far from a scientific expert. Bill Nye has the same qualifications that I do. He has a master's degree, I have a master's degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then he was on a TV show. Yeah. 
I have more engineering experience in the field than he does. So that's another thing, is just make sure you know what, like, what's going on. Understand the environment that your children are going into. And help them know what they're dealing with before they see it. I think another thing is if we're on the defensive instead of the offensive, right? If we're only answering things when it's already been mentioned at school, then you're already kind of at a, a disadvantage because they've already, that's already been implanted, right? And now you're having to go back and, and kind of unravel things. Well, this is one thing you need to teach your children when they're, when they're getting the things they're going to be going off as good as stuff like that is, is these facts and these issues, but you also need to tell them you need to make your mind up now before you get there. Mm-hmm. Are you going to believe in your faith or not? Because you're going to be tested when you get there. You can't wait until that point to make up your mind. Right. You've got to make up your mind beforehand. Right. And I guess, like I said earlier, for, for me, not to not to underestimate my audience, but also for us, don't underestimate your audience. You know, kids are smart. They're smarter than you are. <laughs> the kids are smarter than me. Uh, they're very smart. Um, so don't underestimate what they can take in and when. Because I think I was exposed to a lot of this in probably middle school. I mean, you were teaching this in middle school uh, when I was in middle school. Um, and so when you have that foundation, when, when troubling things come, you're better able to deal with it because you already understand, I've seen this before. And I've seen it in a safe environment, right? Yep, and now I'm teaching. Um, okay, we got five minutes left. I'm not going to try to cram in the other two arguments this morning. I do have one more point to make on this particular argument. So the rebuttal you're going to hear from people when you talk about the first cause, right, God being the first cause, God being a transcendent cause above the universe, the question always comes up, what about God, right? Who created God? Where did God come from? And people get smug and they think they're smart because they think they've trumped your argument just by asking a simple question. So we need to understand when the what about God question comes, it's a flawed question. It's built on a faulty understanding of the argument, right? Remember, we're presenting an argument. We're presenting a premise, we're presenting another premise, and then we're presenting a conclusion. This is the simplest form that the, the argument has. If you go back and you look, um, in my notes I have it, every material effect, a couple bullet points up, cause and effect, every material effect must have an adequate cause. Notice there, it says every material effect. Go back to talk, remember when we were talking about God being outside of the universe, God being outside of natural laws, God is transcendent. This is a natural law. So if someone says, well, what about God? Who created God? Where did God come from? Again, we're trying to measure the brightness of something with a, with a ruler. The question does not apply to God because God is not a material effect. God is not natural. So therefore, God does not have to abide by the law of cause and effect. Right, God created natural laws, so he must be above them. He can't be held by them, held down by them. And so when we're talking about cause and effect, the question about what about God is a flawed question because the question doesn't apply. The, the, the argument doesn't apply to God by definition. The God that we're presenting as part of this argument is outside of those bounds. Okay, any more questions or comments We've got like two or three minutes, and I'm not going to get into any more material. So if anybody has any more questions or stuff they want to bring up, feel free. When your children go off to college and university, 
professor once took the Bible, throwed it in garbage cans, if you believe this, you're going to flunk my class, and pressurizing the children to make a choice to either denounce their faith to pass a class and find acceptance in the uh, college world. Yeah, so so I'm sure this does happen, like I've read of it happening. I will at least provide some encouragement that at least in my experience that was not common. That was not, that's not the everyday case where you've got this aggressive atheist professor who's trying to convert all of his students. Most professors are like anybody else. They're coming to their job and they're working their job and they're going home to their families. Um, not to say it doesn't happen because obviously it has happened and it does happen. Um, but at least take some comfort in knowing that's not the norm. You know, like I said, in, in the electrical engineering department at Auburn, about 60% of the professors were Baptist. Um, and then a, a few of them were like from, from other countries that had other religions. Um, so it's not actually, well, I'll tell you this when I'm not on, a, on stream, but I have a story about a professor of mine in grad school. Um, and, his, his, uh, and he was one of the Baptist ones who uh, had an interesting conversation with. Um, I just wouldn't want to get him in trouble. Um, but yeah, it, there are believing professors on college campuses too. Um, both members of the church and, you know, other religious, uh, people who have good intent and aren't trying to, to tear down everyone's faith. Um, you'll find a mix of both with varying experiences. But I mean, if it does happen to you, you want to be prepared. Yeah, it'll it'll change depending on where you go. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it's different, especially like you said, probably the northeast, the the uh, west coast is probably going to be different. I, I doubt that the average religious beliefs of the professor at Auburn is the same as the professor at Berkeley. <laughs> All right, any other comments? Anything else? Any questions? Okay, well, I never do this, but uh, I guess we're going to wrap up early this morning. Uh, beat the buzzer. Thank you guys for listening. We'll continue next week and I'll get to the other two arguments and, and some additional information for you. Thanks.